After all this, you still... I still want that gas, yes. And you had better deliver. Welcome back to the Greenhouse, dear listeners. Uh, apologies for my voice this episode. Uh, allergies are kicking my ass right now. Um, but we're going to be diving into a bit of a current affairs recap uh, with returning contributor. Is it safe to now announce you as PhD? Not quite. Not quite. Okay, not yet. Not yet. <laughs> uh, near PhD, our DC correspondent, Josh, welcome back to the Greenhouse. Well, thanks for having me. It's always exciting to be back. Mm-hmm. So I apologize for not getting uh, you know, a session with you during the course of some of these events, mainly because you had been paying attention to the Supreme Court confirmation mm-hmm. process of Ketanji Brown-Jackson earlier. And I guess it's better to look at it in hindsight, mainly as we're seeing, you know, President Biden kind of vanish again from public presence after what could be considered an actual tangible win for the Biden administration. That's one promise they have delivered on. Yeah, and it's one that was delivered on without any real compromise. And in some ways, I think you're absolutely right, though, for sure. It's actually nice to be able to come on here with it all said and done, you know, not predicting outcomes, not that they are unpredictable. Mm-hmm. Um, they were, it's everything about this hearing was predictable. It was maybe a few interesting bits. Um, you know, I know we've, uh, even on the show and, and obviously privately as well, we've um, criticized, um, you know, the Supreme Court, like worship culture and whatnot, but there's in, in a rather infamous quote from, uh, Supreme Court Justice uh, Elena Kagan, mm-hmm. um, actually well before she was on the court, it's about like 1995. Uh, I'm not sure what legal role she had at the time, but Harvard she Law referred... School, maybe. I don't. I don't yeah, know. she thinks that was around the timeline there. But she once referred to these types of hearings as a uh, vapid and hollow charade. And mm-hmm. really, I mean, I think that's a quote that's kind of you know worth enshrining, and it's really evergreen and applicable to a number of political occurrences right Mm -hmm. uh but it's really much applicable here and you know what she was really getting at is that we don't really get deep enough into you know the what the justices actually like what their legal philosophy is and whatnot and usually you know you look at the record and that's probably you know that's going to be the consideration you want it's usually not a secret Mm -hmm. how these people interpret politics interpret the law interpret the constitution etc but uh what is you know probably most revealing is um the people who are asking the questions right Mm -hmm. i think we've uh we've learned a lot about um you know particularly the republicans this time around but i mean i think you learn a lot just seeing how the party engages with this and uh i'll give a quick shout out to one of my uh former i guess she's still technically a colleague but she's Former MSU uh, graduate, uh, now at the uh, assistant professor at the University of South Carolina, Jessica Shaner, who has um, done a lot of work. She started a research project on the, um, I think, right after the Kavanaugh hearings and has kind mm-hmm. of done these were like large. These confirmation hearings are just an opportunity for senators to grandstand. They're there to take positions. I think this time and I think, you know, to some extent we're seeing a broader pattern of just Republican behavior on what positions that they're taking. And they're not, mm-hmm. they're not explicit. I mean, some of them, there, there are some kind of alarming policy positions that were taken during these hearings, mm-hmm. but there's some 
not policy related ones that I think further uh, demonstrate their descent into the uh, well of madness. I, I broadly agree with that assessment, and especially like with the with the grandstanding bit, like you mentioned. Um, the Republicans had one, you know, line of contention um, regarding certain sentencing that ended up being contentious, and we can get into that later, but. A lot of uh, what the Democrats had to give in offer, you know, either to offer their support or to, you know, question uh, her fitness for the role also turned into an opportunity to grandstand. And there was yep. especially cringeworthy um, testimony from Senator Cory Booker. I'm, I might as well <laughs> include the audio clip because, oh, my God, he was acting his ass off for that one. But Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, I. I you know, it's a significant nomination. I get the importance, uh, primarily from that descriptive standpoint and whatnot. I mean, I think she's a good pick all around, um, mm -hmm. you know, about as good as you could really ask for um, on the Supreme Court. Um, but, but yeah, it is kind of, there's sort of that performative aspect that Booker is uh, a master of, I guess. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's the... He's, he, he's not a master because he's, again, it's not entertaining. It's not even charismatic, but he he does it wantonly and... He feels like he's here to like serve me pizza at Chuck E. Cheese's is what he... I, he always kind of gives that vibe. Very he's, patronizing. He's just in a, a little way. too enthusiastic. And yeah, I, I think, remember at the start of the Trump admin when they were... And this is this is a bit of a callback, but when they were nominating uh, one Jefferson Beauregard Sessions to the position of Attorney General, <laughs> and yeah. uh, you know Cory Booker gave an impassioned speech about you know his his legacy of racism and institutional racism in American politics, only to then um, vote yes on a bill that would prevent uh, prescription drugs coming in from Canada. Wow. So you know. If this is the kind of stuff that appeals to the donors, but oh my god, Democratic donors, guys, <laughs> you, you got to raise your standards on what you find entertaining. This is this is this is this is bad, but yeah. So back back to the details of uh, the matter at hand, um, and just some context too. This happens, you know, in the wake of Stephen Breyer's um, resignation, which I think is a lesson learned. Uh, yeah. from RBG's, you know, lack of consideration of a strategic retirement. And this is a well, point... Well, to be fair, too, ahead, I kind of want to give him a little bit more credit as well, mm -hmm. because I think a lot... Of, like, even, like, I think we were kind of harsh on him for, like, not stepping down sooner, but I... All things considered, I think the timing was pretty good. I mean, yeah, you had, you know, kind of Russia-Ukraine sort of suck all of the air out of mm -hmm. <laughs> these hearings, mm -hmm. but in some ways, maybe that was for the best. Um, in certain capacities, right? Because I think that uh, um, it may have benefited uh, Katanji Brown Jackson to like kind of get through with you know relatively unscathed. I mean, I think she still did bear the brunt of some kind of ridiculous things too. Mm -hmm. but, mm -hmm. And we're going to get into that, obviously. Yeah, and I think you know Biden did promise that one of his named appointees to the Supreme Court would be a black woman. So that is, you know, a promise kept for yep. for Brandon. So the fact that they're, again, making a W for themselves and not really playing it up um, is, is kind of another pattern of the behavior we've noticed about the Biden mm -hmm. administration where 
losses are kind of written off, even wins are written off. And he's kind of yeah. content to, you know, talk to whatever shadowy figure is behind him when the audience claps. <laughs> that, that was also yeah. a weird occurrence, but again, unrelated. Well, you also, I mean, from this, you had his uh, defining America with uh, some word that I don't, I was confused. And was he evoking the name of the Pharaoh? I'm not sure what was going on. Oh my um, God. What was he to be fair, when you, To be fair, when you got the whole context of the clip, I think it was actually worse because he goes on this whole like side tangent that has nothing to do with it. Oh my God. But the word eventually was possibility. Mm-hmm. So, and, and yeah, like like you mentioned earlier, uh, Kitanji Brown-Jackson is um, a pretty sensible pick. Not exactly the most traditional pick for a Supreme Court justice, but in terms of like the qualifications we've come to expect, pretty boilerplate. Um, the Sentencing Commission and uh, a role as a public defender does grant her some unique perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of like the kind of responses she gave, because I decided to watch a highlight reel of the hearings, and it's, I'm I'm not sure what she's offering other than you know the standard fare we've come to expect from liberal in- intellectuals. There's nothing well, particularly objectionable about it. Well, her. and and to be fair, in these hearings, they'll never say anything objectionable. Mm-hmm. they never. That's pretty much been. Um, I, I think most scholars sort of attribute it to the uh, Ginsburg rule. So it like kind of starts with Ginsburg. Um, I would argue it went a little bit before that. Basically, like outside of like someone like Robert Bork, who is sort of like this infamous uh, figure on like conservative side. Ahead of his had, time, like yeah, very Trump ahead of his time. Yeah. And like kind of bizarrely, like you kind of saw throughout these hearings an airing of grievances about that confirmation you know 40 plus years on and of course um you know the kavanaugh hearing where they're like you know if we treated you like they treated kavanaugh this would be you know horrible but i mean to be fair they did kind of try to with (laughs) way less evidence oh yeah oh yeah and i guess i guess let's maybe address that point first and foremost which is um this allegation of Kitanji Brown Jackson, one is being soft on crime, which is an ad nauseum uh, attack on any one left of center. I don't. I wouldn't even call her particularly left of center in the in in you know her particular career, but t- traditionally Republicans have deployed that on Democrats and their allies. And I don't necessarily find her to be soft on crime in general, but it was well, specifically too, yeah, there's that specific uh, link as like a former public defender because right. literally it was her job to defend acute people accused of criminal activity, and that was very clearly unacceptable. And I think you know it's it's kind of amusing that we always hear about like law and order and whatnot as far as like a political brand, but it's never really on like a due process angle it's just on like oh it's very selective because again when when someone like alan dershowitz you know will come up and talk about well doesn't jeffrey epstein deserve a right to a fair trial you know (laughs) that that brand of uh the right wing and the civil libertarians will you know call us you know dogs and pigs for impugning that but then you know a public defender who's kind of the average person's only recourse in a court of law especially what we have come to learn about uh, the ways in which uh, poor people, often people of color in, in the United States, tend not to have access exactly. to adequate legal you know, protection. 
a public defender is a stopgap in our system, and it's mm-hmm. not necess- you know it's not even necessarily a mark of um, allying with criminals the way right wingers make it out to be. So it's very selective behavior on their part, right? And, and the specific allegation in these hearings, which it, it, it's frustrating because they had all the, the like we mentioned this at the start of the year that the Judiciary Committee Republicans are an entire rogues gallery. So you had Ted Cruz. Ben's ass, Josh Hallway, um, uh, Senator Lindsey Graham, like the, the the ones who everyone wants to sock in the face. Parody, satire, parody, not actionable, yeah. not a threat. Um, and at all, one time it was bipartisan to want to sack a lot of these guys in the face, but that at one time, sailed. yeah, yeah, at one time, um, you know, all all of them kind, or even um, Collins joined in on this. Um, but it was this, this alleged point that, um, KBJ is soft on, it's in this one case in particular, which I didn't, I didn't have a chance to follow up on the facts on. And there, I, I did some background research on this because they're cannibalizing a lot of stories into yeah. one narrative. They're taking some of her work on the sentencing commission, which is a bipartisan, uh institution and these were you know recommendations they made on Mm -hmm. um sentencing guidelines for specifically child pornography yep and they also are pointing to one case again i i could not take a look at the details and i'll be honest some of this stuff is squeamish i don't enjoy looking at this but um they allege that she didn't follow mandatory minimum requirements is that is that correct I think that I think it's even less than that. I think she didn't go with like the maximum requirements that it was like a relatively light sentence. And I think there was like a few things where they're pulling from. I and I'm not. I think it's from that case, but it might have been one of those other ones that they're sort of bringing in where she was asking about like in when like the fact finding part of the case, like if it was you know. Basically, if it was just a mark of sexual deviance, or if it was, you know, uh, some power thing, some control thing, like like uh, trying to get at the motive, the degree of separation, basically, yeah. was the the root of the case. Yeah, and like they're kind of using that, and like it's not even like you were kind of saying that they were treating it as like it's soft on like crime or soft on, you know, pedophilia. Essentially, some went the full mile and just straight up pro pedophile. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, I mean, Marjorie Taylor Greene like tweeted out that like the three Republicans that ended up voting for her, um, Collins, uh, Romney, and uh, Markowski, that they're all pro pedophile because they <laughs> confirmed this justice, and it's it's kind of insane, and it's it's weird where it's like this apex of the culture war is just like it's built on this. Right now, at least, it's built on the idea that like you know the left is pedophiles which was all you know part of like the the initial QAnon conspiracy that kicked it all off right is the idea Mm -hmm. of you know this you know secret sexual cabal that they're pedophiles they're groomers of course that ties into you know basically if you're gay you're a groomer is how they have um essentially codified it in their Mm -hmm. wacky canon of uh ideology and it's uh it's really just taking a head here uh, there were a few other things that were more policy substantive that they attacked her on, where it was basically that 
it's very obvious that like Roe is just a small stepping stone for them. They're like, you know, oh, like, you know, obviously Auberfield and whatnot. Like, I mean, obviously we knew that they're not, you know, in favor of gay marriage being legal and stuff like that. But mm-hmm. they're even like going after like Connecticut v. Griswold, which is mm-hmm. what establishes, you know, sort of this right to privacy with birth control. Uh, and really it's the right to privacy more broadly mm-hmm. um, is kind of rooted in that case. And it's like kind of insane that for a while it seemed like these were kind of just things that everyone just accepted like yeah we have this right you know it's Mm -hmm. you're not totally thrilled about all the implications of it but it's just kind of like yeah like cool we can at least accept this exists and maybe you know be a little angry about it but not actively try to undermine it i mean i i agree with that because um you know we're dealing with with a new uh, level of inflation. There's a foreign policy crisis that it's not clear what America's action ought to be. Um, a host of other problems, you know, domestically are prevalent. And it's kind of interesting to see the ways that, you know, the Democratic Party, we've talked about this ad nauseum, is they have no clear or coherent response on how to deal with this systemically. And then when this kind of stuff happens with the Republicans, they hit the culture war button and they've been able to hit it pretty devastatingly lately. And, you know, the particular behavior in, um, you know, this, this confirmation hearing is, it sounds a bit like they want to relitigate the Kavanaugh hearings. Yes. And the thing is, is I think Democrats had a lot of ammo at their disposal. One to say, one, you guys got Amy Coney Barrett. You need to shut up. There's a, ton, the, a host of other things too. Like the 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 thing that got me about KBJ's responses, and again, like it's it's a Senate hearing. You can't be as obtuse as I would like to be, or as I would <laughs> like these people to be. But again, like some of these guys, you can just, I mean, you could just say, wasn't Matt Gates seen with? Uh... Well, yeah. I mean, the the intellectual like gymnastics that you have to go through. Mm-hmm. You like, you know, even if you want to like subscribe to the idea that there's a bunch of like groomers and pedophiles or whatever on like the left the level of gymnastics you have to go through to like ignore the much stronger evidence for figures on the right um and i I think too i mean it's just always kind of that weird thing too where they'll be like oh you know the clintons and then you know you point out like trump and his friendship with you know jeffrey and stuff like that and like i mean at least in my case it's like it's not deflection it's like yeah you know what if there's evidence that clinton's you know that then yeah throw him throw him in jail too but like that's the difference between me and you is i can accept that both suck yeah <laughs> they can both well, well, be and, awful people and 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 that's the funny thing about this because i didn't think this would come up but here it comes back again is this idea of did biden kill me too and in summary did that then have the effect of fracturing whatever energy um people had on this topic because I, I know that me too had its issues um but at least it was this fine this this initial like you know restructuring of the conversation um around like the fact that okay we're, we should be past this as a society by now and i think that was the most positive aspect of it and with you know biden's own allegations being kind of hushed or being like you know kind of downplayed uh-huh. or you know being basically dismissed outright 
that that has a that has an effect that kind of just re you know people think they swept it under the rug but i think it's more like you push it back into the culture war once again sure and now it's being regurgitated through you know the liberal side of the culture war and mm. the conservative side yeah and i mean what i hate about this the most is that you know victims of sex crimes in both sides of this are always a football their actual sure. you know the their need for justice is never properly um validated or considered or even or even given in any yeah it's kind of just a like the idea of like being a political weapon and like the person that the actual mm -hmm. victims aren't really important right and and that's the thing is like with um with the kavanaugh hearings i mean i'll 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 say it safely is that i think democrats fumbled the bag they had a chance to kind of nail kavanaugh on it you had then uh, Senator Kamala Harris, you know, renowned for being a relentless prosecutor, not really able to, you know, keep up with Kavanaugh. You had, um, God, you had Diane Feinstein basically just waving her hand of it because she didn't understand what was going on. You had all these Republican. I mean, you had what was that? Uh, well, she had a, a particularly big role to play because I believe she was the head of the committee. Right. And in fact, I think that like initially, like she kind of like reluctantly brought like the first accusation into light just because it had been given to her and like mm -hmm. trusted with her. Um, and I mean, there's a, a whole nother can of worms to open with Feinstein, like with mm -hmm. her uh, apparent mental health state based on some recent stories. And I'm kind of, you know, you kind of wonder, you know, in hindsight, did that impact anything with that hearing or especially the, uh, you know the um amy coney barrett hearing where oh, yeah, you know, with amy coney barrett she was just impressed yeah. with her she was just happy to yeah. let her through yeah and i know that like you know with american civic religion and things like that we like to view the court as this kind of like shining impartial body um but you know people willfully there's and i don't know who it benefits to willfully adopt that fantasy because it should behoove everyone to recognize that this is a political institution just like everything else now. I mean, I would say generally it benefits um, the status quo, but like lately just with like the supermajority conservative on the court, mm -hmm. um, you know, where you need to swing votes on anything in order to get like a liberal outcome. I think that's it's really become clear um, that it's, you know, the, there's some instability there. And it's funny that because you are seeing more of these things where I don't know. There's like all kinds of problems with the way I think that the courts are talked about. I've seen people say like, oh, well, retirements politicize the court because it becomes this political battle. And mm -hmm. like, it's like, but not, you only raise this now. Why? Because it's arguably been something that's like, I mean, beyond just the past five years with the three confirmation hearings we've had prior to this, it's been something that goes further back. And it's interesting too because like we talked a little bit earlier about how this was sort of like this airing of grievances for the kavanaugh hearings mm -hmm. by republicans uh and you know i kind of mentioned too that like you know it's sort of like with bork that they just feel this grand betrayal but like a key part that's like always missing from that story is that like the same senate that rejected bork which included republicans that rejected him also almost unanimously confirmed antonin scalia and Clarence Thomas, if I'm not, or was uh, it was Warren. a little it was, that was a little bit later, but yeah, okay. um, and then you know, I mean, obviously, you know, any accusations of uh, you know, 
affirmative action, right? I mean, obviously, I mean, do we really think Clarence Thomas was appointed for any other reason other than the fact that he was replacing a black man? Probably not. And I mean, it's, it's you know, I definitely reject the idea that you should ever, you know, treat a Supreme Court justice with this idea that they will be impartial. You know, mm-hmm. at, at the end of the day, what the Supreme Court has is the ability to reject any legislative change outright. It has the ability to, you know, cause a president to cease and desist. I'm, I'm not good with legal terminology. I know I'm butchering all that. <laughs> That's fine. Any lawyers listening to this show, you did this to yourself. You hit play. Sorry. <laughs> but again, it's like that's the you know the power of this institution is that it has the final say of how the law ought to be interpreted. So even if you think it's an impartial body, that's a willful fantasy because by nature it is political. By nature it is saying this is this is how we want the law to be interpreted. So that that's one you know fallacious way that people look at the court. Yeah. Um, but then I think the second thing too is um, with. Um, the way in which, you know, um, this, this allegation of Ketanji Brown Jackson's, you know, alleged lightness on the sentencing of child pornography was brought up. Um, it, it kind of betrays, like I said, was saying earlier, one that like sexual impropriety is just used as a political football. It has no it's never seriously taken by anyone. And part of me, you know, cynically, I don't want to totally say anyone, but I think by by the parties at large is what I mean. Yeah. Is like by the parties at large, you know, they, it's a political football when they need it to be one. And, you know, the cynical take I have is, well, if you, if you expose one person for something, that means you got to expose the majority of the body at that point. That could imply a lot of people in power. Are guilty of this and like you were saying earlier like you know the clintons and trump it's not a stretch to think that you know people in power get away with a lot now of course that's where like you know the the prevalence of conspiracy theory you know comes in yeah and people are like well these guys are doing all this horrible shit it's satanic there's some <laughs> ulterior motive behind it and you know i try not to get into too much of that because it, it, it's you know it's people trying to make sense of something that they actually don't want to admit, which is people in power, the people who hold power are so opaque to us, so unaccountable to us, that oftentimes they can get away with a lot of this stuff, even if you know they may not have done it, or even if it's unpleasant to think about. Well, I think too, because I, I think, you know, at least on, you know, when they're on like your same side of the aisle per se, mm-hmm. people want to see, you know, some of themselves there, right? They want to mm-hmm. empathize with these people. And, you know, yeah, you know, hero worship can be cringe at, in like the most like light of terms or really a serious problem. And it's most heavy just because of the, uh, you know, things that it sort of apologizes and promotes. But, at the same time it's like that's why it's like hard to like process some of this for some people but you're you're absolutely right that it's kind of like and and again you know i, I don't want to like stray too heavily into this just because it sort of might give more weight to you know these accusations in this case than uh, mm-hmm. they really have any business but uh yeah you're i mean you're right it's it's a political football it's 
you know, it, 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 it plays at some of people's like worst fears of humanity mm-hmm. um, in general at large. And I think it also just, it's, it's just designed. It's just, it's like a more vicious form of like that's this political irksmanship and whatnot. And I think you're really seeing it prominently on the right these days, um, especially I think with, you know, and not that me too was a conspiracy and whatnot, but like, you know, you especially with like me too kind of I don't totally want to say it's dead, but that being said, the last time I've seen it trend or really like brought up heavily, it's been a really long time. Mm-hmm. Uh so yeah, we're just kind of left with this like weird thing where like one side is just insistent that the other side is pedophiles. Every gay person who and because they support gay rights, every gay person's a groomer, which means they all support grooming. And it's just kind of and it's really vitriolic and it's it's pretty much the only thing that like the right seems to have any real open stake on because you know they're not willing to like share policy um because Mitch McConnell's like you know you gotta wait till we're elected which is kind of a new thing (laughs) um except this this is all that they've got now is just this deep dive culture war stuff Mm -hmm. and I guess that's maybe good enough to get enough voters that you need to get past you know the plurality or whatever well and again like we've talked about this in the past too but like there is a a net refusal in political discourse in america broadly to you know not really talk about economic issues or if you do talk about them you take the existence of the political issue the the issue of political economy and then tie it to a culture war grievance yeah and we we see this a lot where it's like god dang inflation so those homo democrats who started it all over again then well, like, yeah, like, that's that's like a pop you know very dismissive way to bring it up but it's the same thing too with like oh red states are poor it's because uh these yokels will vote for republicans <laughs> even though like southern states are so gerrymandered that even if someone's liberal they can't influence that vote you know well i mean for any state when you have like political parties that are uh one way or the other that are just way too strong Mm-hmm. Uh, they tend to like i mean it's kind of that one it's you know it's like what people criticize china for right it's a one-party system a decent chunk of states that are basically one-party systems you most of mm-hmm. them are you know southern right-wing states but you have like california and new york where like you're not exactly getting liberal outcomes in mm-hmm. a lot of cases mm-hmm. there um you you might get some on social issues but i mean you look at new york with you know primarily like lately it's been their police department that's been under fire where you know, it's practically incompetent, mm-hmm. uh, despite getting, you know, a shit ton of funding. I, I mean, and that's what it is, is it gets people delving into conspiracy. And I, I know we talked about this before, and I had a feeling this this conversation was going to come up at some point between the two of us. So I guess it's better we do it on air. It's like, you know, has conspiracy thinking replaced any consideration for political economy that people have because like it then like forces you because people never want to confront that idea of like is the meritocracy we live in flawed is the amount of money that rich people made is it earned what do they do with that money you know and like why is it that rich people get away with crimes why do they have influence in these networks of patronage and government and it's not it's not to say like oh things bad because rich people control it i would give you know a better answer of that that you know 
this is a class that acts in class interest and, you know, uses mm-hmm. its financial power to influence outcomes that are, you know, favorable to it. That's that's the real answer here. But and there's the lack don't want of it... class identity on the other side. And... Exactly. And, you know, if you want to take that into a Marxist or socialist analysis, that's where you would get, you know, sure. your, your theory of change. But that's that's another discussion. Yeah, I, I guess, I mean, to kind of answer your question about does this, like, conspiracy thinking sort of, like, substitute, if you will, um, or just overwhelm the sense of, like, actual, like, economic um, policy and whatnot. I mean, I guess, like, I mean, for me, like, do we... <laughs> <laughs> do we want to count like trickle down as a you know maybe not as so much a conspiracy but a fantasy it's similarly facetious and stuff like that because i feel like there's just sort oh, of we can this... absolutely count it because these, these are like willful fantasies and i just because, want to like yeah I, so I, I think so i think let's like broaden the definition a little bit just to like be like yeah. it's fantasy thinking right because it's not like conspiracy implies that there's sort of like this malicious other that we're like fighting against or opposed to i mean that's uh, whereas, true but like but just, whereas just i think right, yeah yeah is that you know conspiracy theory has become fantastical thinking to a lot of people right like, something that i wanted to like this is an observation i had during the january 6th stuff last year there was one guy at these protests who was like dealing with like severe illness going there thinking that if he takes down the cabal he'll finally get health insurance that's like, and on the one hand, it's like, okay, this guy's a dumbass. But at the same time, people are desperate, so yeah. desperate that they, this is what they resort to. Well, and point. it it just shows too, like you know, these conditions. It's not like you know, it's time to you know piss off you know some of the Marxists and whatnot. That uh, people in desperate times aren't necessarily attracted to your side of thinking necessarily. Just like increasing the struggle doesn't necessarily, you know, that's one of the things that you know, historically Marx has kind of been proven wrong about, they tend to gravitate towards these demagogues and whatnot who, and it's not even like Trump promised like healthcare or anything like that. It's just assumed that like, of course, why wouldn't, you know, this God's gift to man give me everything that I need? Um, so, and I mean, it's just, you know, it's a product of that lack of understanding whatnot. But I, I would say for the economic thing, like, because like thinking about the uh, inflation discussion, a lot of it's just like, oh, well, it's because, you know, we did something the liberals wanted. Uh, they wanted mm-hmm. like increased government spending. That's going to increase inflation. So just anything Biden's doing, that's increasing inflation. And you know we've you know talked privately, uh, and we could you know probably worth mentioning now. There's a lot of things that are driving it, right? You know, mm-hmm. between you know the gas price issue, which is kind of a double-edged sword. It's you know in part because of these sanctions with Russia. It's also in part because the gas companies um, are just realize and they can charge more exactly exactly you know like under the guise of that and you also see the biden administration also pulling some moves like pulling barrels from uh you know the reserve and whatnot which probably didn't really have an impact on gas but he probably just knew that gas prices were going to go down so he did that to make it look like he played a role in it which i know was like Mm -hmm. this 40 chess level of thought process that you're probably you know, blown away that Biden could ever think of. And, <laughs> you know, saying it, it does sound a little absurd. But I think he's, at least in this capacity, a little smarter than we sometimes give him credit for. Um, but, uh, you know, and, and uh, but then you also have some stuff with, you know, down south of the border with you know, Texas. And I don't know why this story has been so undercovered where they are. Oh, yeah, we can know, jump into that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, where they're, you know, blocking off, um, 
they're, they're, they're increasing inspections on these trucks and it's caused, um, I can't remember exact figures, but I know there was this one guy, it was a trucker who was like ranting about how, you know, we would usually get like four trucks like picked up. Like they would like, you know, the Mexican trucks would leave their trailers and then an American truck would pick it up and they would do that like four times a day. And now uh, they, they're lucky to get like one trip mm-hmm. out of them and whatnot. And like, I, I think I saw another figure too, where it's like $200 million in produce. It's just gone bad. Because Which explains delays. a lot that I, I've yeah. been just noticing this. The quality of produce has gone down. That's just like an yeah. anecdotal observation. But even then, like things like commodity shortages have been blamed on Biden ad nauseum. But this is like, like again, when you brought this story to my attention earlier, I had no idea that this was going on. Yeah. And it explains a lot about like some of these supply chain issues. And they even pointed to like the trucker shit in Canada. But like, I don't know what we're getting significantly from Canada to. Well, yeah, but I mean, well, that's another thing too, right? Is you did have that trucker stuff right. in there, and like it's been like this nonstop like cycle. There's always been something messing it up, right? You had you know shipping delays, people not at the ports, people un- being unable to go to the ports because right. of co- having COVID or COVID restrictions. That usually, too, yeah, yeah. Usually the uh, the former in a lot of cases because that's what a lot of people seem to forget with the you know quote unquote harsh uh, lockdowns, which um, just like what's happening in Shanghai. If you think we've had a bad. Um, <laughs> but uh, they um where people like kind of forget that there's like a reason for this and it's not just like oh so like grandma doesn't get sick it's like it, sick employees can't work mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah so like fundamentally with um this uh story from the texas border again known demon greg abbott once again has his hands uh in just another horrible story where um, you know, I'm, I'm just going to summarize the article you sent. I, I don't remember all the facts and figures, but basically they were trying to do, it wasn't even for drugs. This was to check for illegal immigration through trucking. Yeah. And this is the kind of thing where I, I don't remember exactly how they were stopping people, but, you know, tr- uh, truck stops where they catch illegal immigrants make up mm. about 5% of you know the actual amount of people sure. crossing the border most it, most of it is through other manners and oftentimes it is people physically making the trek through harsh environments that that are yeah well this is 100% sort of you know a way that like the right sort of occasionally lives up or tries to live up to its promises which obviously you know we don't support most of those like especially mm-hmm. on something like immigration but you know like in order to like demonstrate that we're we're quote unquote doing something will do this even though it it, it it it's a drop in the bucket as far as like whatever immigration they're stopping and it's a massive and, inconvenience is what it is yeah what it is. and you'd think too if they were actually rounding up any illegal immigrants he would be like celebrating this right mm-hmm. and there's been none of that it's been you know largely radio sound that i kind of get it you know this is definitely a pretty not a good story i mean of course following up his long history of bullshit especially um you know, for Texas residents when he uh, really fucked over their power grid and also told the energy companies to charge maximum price for those who did have power. Oh, my God. That story is is also among the worst. Like, they literally wanted it to be like the neoliberal dream of pricing electricity, where it's yeah. just literal supply and demand shit, like fifth grade economics type shit, where just just price it by demand and supply. And it, in the middle of an ice storm, 
You can only imagine yeah. where that price point leads you. And that's gouging, but that's what they want. Which is weird because like when you realistically think about that like lower level, like you know, like the more basic economics, it's kind of bizarre that we're only seeing like stuff that we see now. Mm-hmm. Because we were never like like when in an economic class, you're never like, oh well, you know, basic humanity would prevent you know what you know what the uh the business from just gouging this to to the moon. But it's like when you really think about it to its logical conclusion, we are experiencing that in virtually everything now where it's like, well, yeah, you you know, like I need gas to put in my car and yeah, there's the same really realistically there's a pretty similar supply we weren't getting that much from russia so it's like yeah why not let's just increase the price because there's the veil that we can and why ever decrease it and it's it's one of those things where it's like you assume or because you have been taught to assume that this makes sense yeah that you don't question it i mean that's that's like my my shit theory of what is greenhouse gaslighting it's people you know seeing the gas price go up knowing they're being gouged and being like well it makes sense there's sanctions uh, on russia and you know the supply short <laughs> it is that kind of shit this is really a strong case that we should just nationalize the industry oh yeah oh, and yeah. i feel like it's just like i feel like you aren't really hearing a whole lot of calls from that because the people who would most like a supporter like well you know we should just move off fossil fuels period it's like this is the first step let's let's be realistic sorry environmentalists i i'm with you but we're not moving off these anytime soon but you might as well nationalize it such that and this is this ties back to the point we were making earlier is that you know why is it that these changes can't be made it's because you know people in power like the Mm -hmm. you know people who make money extracting fossil fuel not the people doing the daily mining work but you know the guys picking up the profits making windfalls off every time there's an oil boom. Um, they have, you know, engineered the system such that if, if, if they smell one whiff of like a regulation, they'll get, you know, heads in the media uh, articles, their lobbyists, Joe Manchin will be mobilized to prevent, <laughs> you know, anything of the nature. So like, you know, that's why we haven't nationalized it. But, you know, our neighbors down south, Mexico, has been able to do the same. Even yeah. even with their rate of corruption. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, so Well, you know, with their rate of corruption, they, they can capitalize it on different ways, too. And right, it's, right. I mean, obviously, I'm not saying nationalism is just this cure-all because there's certain corruption to go around. But to be fair, if Joe Manchin really cared about the coal miner, not, you know, the coal owners, which right. we know what he does, um, wouldn't it be easier to be like, yeah, we've nationalized it. We can guarantee you jobs. Like, and at least, seems... you know, a nationalized coal, you know, oil industry. Now you have something that's a little more accountable to voters. Yeah. However, however shittily, at least it is, you can argue it's, it's accountable. Yeah. And at least, you know, you have more oversight over it that you can start mm-hmm. talking about some of these environmental regulations. You can start talking about detransitioning. You can have a state project to, you know, detransition, but no one wants to hear that. And we've, we've discussed why at this point. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, again, just another demonic, uh, <laughs> another demonic spell cast by, uh, the Archfey Greg Abbott. Um, he beguiles us with his, uh, eldritch ways and, Despite getting hit by a tree and ending up in a wheelchair, he still didn't get the sign from God that he should maybe change his ways. 
Yeah. It's like, if, I feel like we're like inching closer and closer to these people maybe seeing some type of divine retribution at some point, right? You know, it's like, even like DeSantis, right? Like his wife gets cancer, not him, but like maybe just one day. It's, it's just like, I mean, the average person will go through like a minor inconvenience and just like in, through the cycle of self-doubt, just be like, Am I a bad person? And these <laughs> ghouls, like, this is not my joke. I'm ripping this off. But, like, you know, Jair Bolsonaro has got COVID 12 times now or something like that, right? At, at what point do you think, like, do you, do you just look at this and think, like, God, am I, am I, the, am I the villain in this story? Like, what? <laughs> you would think. I mean, the grift is just too, it's too strong. I think, I mean, there is always that debate, right? I mean, I think, like, when you're, once you're in office, that debate's sort of over whether or not you actually believe the bullshit you say or do. Because mm -hmm. if you're, even if you don't believe it, but you're doing it, like, you're already doing the harm. So, like, it's, I think you lose any deniability there. But, like, some of these people, man, they, you would hope that, you hope that they're not for real. Yeah. I, I, as a side tangent, have you seen um this new series they did on Hulu, The Dropout? I haven't. Yeah, so it's about Elizabeth Holmes and her stint uh, running Theranos. If you're familiar okay. with, with that story and how she defrauded her investors and was basically yeah. was basically doing you know tests on human subjects they should not have been doing. <laughs> um, and the whole like you know the way they they set up the show one is beautiful because they capture a lot of the Obama era brain rot that captured it like you know particularly like business types. Mm -hmm. But also, like, they do address that question of, like, you know, when you're in that position of power and influence, how much of your own shit do you learn to believe? To yeah. the point that you're not even just lying to your investors and lying to customers, you're lying to yourself. Yeah. And, I mean, this is what I mean, like, you know, when, when conspiracy theorists, theorists, you know, talk about lizard people, they're not actual reptiles, guys. They just have this like degree of psychotic behavior that makes them reptilian to to, to you as a, when you perceive it. Yeah, and it's just, but they're it, not actually it, lizards. Come on. Yeah, when sometimes too, like like the truth is just so nefarious. Like, why why do you need to make up like an extra five steps behind it? Like, it, it, it it's like I, I mean I don't know. Like with with some of this, it's it's so salacious and it's so like the details make you squeamish, especially like. With shit like with Epstein, mm -hmm. and you think about you know who who they're connected to. I think you know people, and, and the way we're conditioned to think about wealth and power and status in American culture, especially like I think it just it, that's the release valve that people go down because they just they cannot fathom um, this idea of like you know people in power behaving irresponsibly and without consequence. That's actually worse than satanic shit. I don't know. Yeah. So, and and, and again, speak, speak, not to bring up Greg Abbott again. Um, and but this this does tie to like where we started this episode is you know with some of these this 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 burst of anti-trans legislation this year. It's been like. I, I feel bad for not keeping up with it because it's again one of those topics that personally gets me squeamish to think about like like you know dealing with that much bigotry mm -hmm. and just kind of looking at how hateful some of these people are with it. But I think 243 bills alone have been passed in like the past three yeah, months or something I mean, like that. It's wild, like where 
because I know when you, like you, we were like doing the outline and you'd like mention this topic, I was like, I thought most of this was kind of old news. We're like, no, this was like really recent. Like mm -hmm. almost all of these things, you know, obviously you have uh, probably the the headliner one, I guess, is like the "Don't Say Gay" bill in Florida, uh, which has sparked a culture war with Disney of all entities. <laughs> and I mean, at some point, like, I mean, it's, I don't know. And, and again, like they've pointed out, like, I think in, I think it was it Utah where the governor actually vetoed it. Uh, for one and then the legislator tried to over override. Yeah, where like he that. was like, this is for like one person. Like, you know, do I agree with him personally? Because it's a Republican. He's like, no, but like, should I ruin his life? Like, probably not. Like, it's just this basic human thing that it's like, why aren't anyone else like thinking about this? And like, I mean, you had the one pass in South Dakota where, and it all started with this Leah Thomas story, right? Like the transgender swimmer, yeah. like which again, like I'm sorry, who is following varsity swimming this closely? That well, wasn't this the, there wasn't the issue with more so the Olympics, but like whatever. I mean, that's but, but again, it's like I, I don't know because not to turn this into a nerds versus jocks thing, but <laughs> you know who's talking about sports when this is the shit they fixate on. Yeah, and I mean, and a lot of it too. It's just kind of, it's because like, oh, it's you know unfair, and it's like it's the one thing where they're able to get sort of like people who, you know, claim they're pro trans. I would say they probably generally aren't, but they're at least like, I'm not going to like take out my pitchfork at the presence of one. Mm -hmm. But it's a little bit more persuadable because they're like, well, yeah, that's really unfair for athletes, right? And. I, I guess it plays somewhat well with that group. I don't know how like well like if that really persuades voters, but it's just like it's gotten to a point where like that this is all they have is just right. Is this like it's like this is all like vote for us will make trans people kill themselves, and that's our only real policy position right now. <sighs> And I brought this up like on past episodes, and I I asked this question repeatedly because it it helps me unpack some of the pathology behind why people think like this, and then it also doesn't. But for all the people who like are rabidly, like existentially terrified of trans people, the way they histrionically post about it, the mm -hmm. the level of op eds, the way they you know they pray the rosary at the at the at the imagined thought of dealing with a trans person, you know. How many of them have ever had an interaction with someone who is trans in any capacity other than a transactional one? Yeah. No one has ever, like, in, in, in the history of all this shit, no one has ever been forced to deal with a trans person. No one has ever been forced to, like, accept things. No one has been asked to endorse someone else's lifestyle. That has never had to come up, even though that's what people are afraid of broadly. But it's, I don't know. Well, I feel like, I mean, in some ways, this is sort of just, and I mean, obviously, we're talking about, we have, they haven't totally moved on from, you know, homo, just, you know, normal homophobia. Right. Um, you know, obviously, the don't say gay bill, like more specifically, is about, you know, just dealing with gay people and, you know, not being able to inform kids about them or i mean kids makes it sound a little 
but basically you have to have to pretend they don't exist uh, in front of mm-hmm. you know students. Um, and I, I think you know it's sort of they've 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 lost the war against gay people, right? You know the population is generally pretty accepting of it, right? So it's like this is like okay, well we lost that, but like we let's like take the next step down. Mm-hmm. And this is like a group where there's you know less tolerance of it, but not like I mean obviously like it's there is a lot of bigots out there, but I don't necessarily think like. I mean, it's not like, you know, Harvey Milk getting assassinated in the 80s. Like, it's not like, you know, a movement that's being actively, like, killed and stuff like that. I mean, I'm sure there have been, you know, hate crimes committed against these people. But I don't think it's, you know, by and large, it's not like the population is just, you know, hunting these people down. It's, it's just, still you know, in a Cold War phase. It's not yeah. It's not fully at... And I don't, well, and, and I don't think it's, it's like the, you know, it's a small population that's against this group. That's very, very small. Mm-hmm. And I feel like this is just, again, like they, they lost the one war and this is their follow up. And, it, and it, that's the thing. It makes them look like they're doing something to their base. Yeah. Because again, inflation's still on the table, unemployment's still on the table. Um, you know, upward mobility is, is, is a fantasy at this point for people. Like, well, and even too, I was thinking like on some fiscal stuff. And like, granted, this was from Chuck Grassley, and I don't know how much you can trust him and his mental faculties mm-hmm. but he had said that they that like we're not going to vote to repeal obamacare if he went back to the senate and i'm like we're just giving up on that too so like which i mean good but like from a perspective of like you, you insisted this was this great evil and burden on the healthcare system but we're now we're not going to do anything about it it seems like they've just given up that whole fiscal dimension, like they got the tax cuts they wanted. They just need to keep them in place and they don't have any remedies for anything else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I mean, again, like it, it, that's the frustrating thing about the Republicans is, you know, they, they push the culture war button and it's escalated to this point. But at the same time, like a lot of, the liberal you know response has been flaccid and that's that's also worrisome in that you know it's not necessarily clear what you do especially in state legislatures where democratic you know uh legislators are like in a severe minority but anything like a federal statute or an executive order or some kind of directive would be incredibly useful in this moment and it's dead in the water with the current coalition um, not just the size, but just you know, the current members aren't. You're not going to have. You're not going to get that past that threshold that you need to create that federal measure that mm-hmm. would be desperately helpful. And you know, it's. I think a lot of it is that they're in that midterm mode or that pre-midterm mode, and all these strategists are like basically saying like, "Oh, well, I'll concede a few points to Republicans to like save democracy." And it's like, well, okay, so like, what is that Republicans really want now? They want to, you know, screw over gay people, screw over trans people, you know, screw over the whole LGBTQ plus community, screw over black people and, you know, other minorities and seemingly end democracy. Okay, so, like, we don't want this outcome, so I guess we just accept the other ones. Like, it's baffling to me. And and by accepting those other ones, are you really preserving any real sense of democracy beyond just the normative you know idea of people participating that's what democracy is it, it just feels like 
you concede those points, you concede like, oh yeah, like, well, we don't pass voting rights and stuff like that, then like, what are you doing to preserve democracy? And and it's kind of, I, I don't know if this is the right way to analyze this, but the kind of Democratic Party playbook now is how do we get a W without struggle? And I'm not saying struggle in like a in a Marxist capacity. I'm just saying struggle in like a legislative capacity, in an electoral capacity. Mm-hmm. Because on some level, I get it. Like the the kind of id Paul SJW moralism can be exhausting. It can be unpopular. But then there's also just certain matters of principle, I think, that you know. I, it's easy to win with your base. I don't think. Well, trans- I, we'll I think one it. party understands it's easy to win with their base, and the other doesn't seem as interested in using its base. That's also true, and, and that's the question. You know, it's like you know, because like I said, like or sorry, like you said, and I agree with what you're saying is that it is baffling if you assume, I guess, that they say they care about people and mean it. Mm-hmm. And you don't want to like think too hard. Cause it's, it, it, it's unpleasant to imagine that like, God, are these guys just, you know, talking out their asses at this point? Well, and but... I, I think some of it is just like so many of them are ingrained with like, even if they do legitimately care, they're so ingrained with this like strategy class mindset of mm-hmm. winning electives is important, which it is. And the way to do that is, you know, all rooted in median voter theorem, which means we need centrist voters. Right. And that middle is vanishing. And frankly, if they're like, what is it that you're going to do to bring them over? Just like, kind of like, and again, like you can't pretend to like not be extreme or just be not extreme because. I mean, hell, I looked at the New York Times and they're framing the French elections as mm-hmm. a battle between the extremes, between Marie Le Pen and Emmanuel Macron. That would be like stateside if we had Mitt Romney versus Donald Trump. Also, also and like Jean-Luc Mélenchon wasn't in the race. Like you had an actual. <laughs> yeah, like, you know, then it's like if, the, if that was how you were going to frame it, like this guy versus, you know, her, then you would have had maybe a point. But it was like they, the fact that like the media chooses to portray it as just like sort of like, you know, left, right, and it's equal distance apart from the center. And that's not really true. Um, we obviously understand that. I think, you know, probably most of your listeners by now would understand yeah. that. Um, and it's just this wild thing where like, I think that they, they're they so ingrained in this mindset and it costs them time after time, you know, like these people. And, and again, it's, it's, sort of from this point of privilege that you know they're like you know oh well we can like sacrifice certain priorities in favor of you know what they want and again it's like well they need to have a tangible thing that they want that's not you know horrible or bigoted Mm -hmm. and they're just not presenting that and i think it's as i said i think it's just so ingrained in this idea of like institutional norms and you know from a both how you know congress and legislation works and also how elections work that i think there's just this it's it's not so much that i think that they're unwilling to struggle to do the work to like win it's that they're unnecessarily to struggle to like come up with the creative energy to do anything different that makes sense i mean that's yeah 
the alternative of like putting in the effort to basically build a new party at that point is too is too much to imagine. And really, it's not even like building a new party. It's just like they have so much historical. Delivering. Yeah, there's so much historical rhetoric they can draw on to exactly. just kind of like fold back in voting rights, uh, the voting rights coalition to fold back in labor, to fold back in environmentalists. And like, I know median voter theorem has become like this, this stalking horse among liberal commentators that well, you got to win with moderates. You got to get these moderates on board. And it's a moving target because the moderate in one point is Joe Manchin. The moderate in another point is a suburban voter. And it's... it's a it's a frustrating question to consider when you think about one that these are fickle voters and we talked about this in past episodes that quote-unquote moderate voters are incredibly fickle in what they prioritize and it's never consistent year to year and when you talk with like a a true like you know true-blooded moderate who's a proper swing voter and when you talk to them they're basically just rationalizing running like a D&D true neutral character where they're just like you know, crossing enough dots. Yes, valuing you know, like compromise, valuing like, compromise for its own sake rather than yeah. what's like consider- I voted. It's like I voted, you know, Dem on this one, Republican on the other, and I just balanced the sheet. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's like, like the fetishization of balance as a virtue rather than, you know, what is morally correct or what is at a bare minimum fits their ideological values. Yeah. And I, I, again, like I think this is this is worth repeating as people continue to talk about the electoral context um the real problem isn't moderate voters the real problem is the the vast majority of people don't fucking vote yeah and i'm not saying that and that's why you need to register to vote what i mean is like people have tuned themselves out of the process at this point they don't have faith that any of this is going to matter and i wish that you know we could maybe hear some more testimony of some of these people who like may have been voters in the past and just gave up on the process or people who fit the bill of someone who registered to vote and just have preemptively said this isn't going to work or even like you know people who are pretty smart um in other contexts but just do not understand things like you know who's their city clerk and stuff like that because that 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 demographic exists too you have a lot of people too who like have ambitions of changing things or they want to be involved in their communities but they just don't know how this works or conversely they have no faith it'll work sure that's that's who you you need if you want to do big things but i think you know leaving the voting uh demographic and body to i mean broadly at this point people who are college educated you know you're going to continue to get funky results like these yeah and it's like you I mean, you have the, you know, true believers on each side that vote every election. And then you have, you know, this college educated group. And some of them, you know, are also, you know, they identify more in the middle for various reasons and whatnot. But it's like, again, it's like, I don't think, and even just like from a rhetoric side, I don't understand why you don't just dig in that, like, the other side is insane at this point. <laughs> like, don't like in like you don't even necessarily have to engage with it just be like this is like on the most important issue of like you know judicial politics right they have the supreme court nomination 
they are asking the nominee to define womanhood instead of like any other important issue. They're not asking about, you know, if it's okay for, you know, Congress to pass laws to put food on your table or whatnot. All they care about is this, like these vased culture war things. That's all they care about. They care about like this minute portion of the population and making sure that their lives are miserable. And they don't care a, di- a damn about anything that you do that would impact you, how you pay your health care bills, how you put food on your table, anything. Mm-hmm. I don't know why that's not just like this solid attack line. I don't think you need to tie Trump into it. Do it if you want. I don't really care. But like, it feels like this shouldn't be that hard. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But that's the thing is like, you know, keeping it in this abstract, bizarro medium prevents mm-hmm. you from upsetting the apple cart. Yeah. Because then people start to ask questions. You know what I mean? Like, Yeah. <laughs> Why did, like, you know, let's say, you know, we take uh, 2012 as an example. How did Obama and Romney have so many of the same donor pool? Great mysteries of history in that one. <laughs> um, let's, yeah. let's, let's, get, let's get to another depressing point, because this also ties in here. Um, the IPCC report. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm going to broadly summarize the report. Um, they have the uh, executive summary for policymakers, broadly speaking, what the report says, and this is something we've been talking about on the show, is, you know, the way climate change has been discussed, particularly in the past, particularly in liberal circles and some environmentalist circles, is, uh, you know, climate change is this looming event in the horizon that is going to be debilitating. Uh, but if we make uh, efforts today they will go a little will go a long way in the future and you know we had the wave of climate denialism we had coal rolling even even the, the environment has become a culture board issue where i think it actually has a lot of salience as an as an economic issue when played yeah. smartly but again like we've been saying these guys don't play this shit smartly either well and i think what's worse too is this played as an economic issue on the right and not on the left yes that's that is another aspect too and you know the functional reality of the climate change issue at this point you know you have a broadly comfortable west particularly the united states is still somewhat comfortable especially those of us living in more temperate parts of the united states but we're seeing an uptick in deadly storms I mean, last year we had, I mean, what Detroit flooded. That was yep. that was a big disaster. You had um, the tornado in Kentucky that just mowed through like uh, four. Was counties. it last year too? With like the really bad like New York flood as well. Oh yeah, oh yeah, that was the same time as the as the Detroit flood. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then that's just that's just the United States. You know what I mean? And you have in other countries you have unbearable heat waves in the middle east mm-hmm. you were having uh i think it was the island of tonga where the king had to be evacuated along with the rest of the island because th- th- there was just a massive flood event on the island you're seeing these kind of you know uh near miss events become more commonplace so the to, to summarize the ipcc report they are not taking a climate change approach, but like I've said on the program on earlier episodes, we are now in a mindset of climate changed. So it is not about preventing uh, a degree of heat increase. 
it is about limiting the heat increase to one and a half degrees instead of two degrees total. And, you know, the goals and recommendations fundamentally are not that different. You do not need to uncover any new science, but what you do need to recognize is this fundamentally involves a massive reduction in consumption and carbon production. That's what this has always been about. Um, and the reason why no one likes to talk about that is that means that the society of consumer convenience that we enjoy in the United States will have to be significantly reduced. And for countries that would like a similar style of consumer convenience, that is also a route that you can't pursue. But the question remains, why, you know, why, why do you need Coke for style machines? Why does a car have to be the only way you get around? Ever increasing trucks to compensate for, you know, your your, your tiny schlong. Like there's there, there's a there's, you know, there, there's there's that aspect of it to be contained. But you know, the, the, the report is clear that if uh climate change is contained to one and a half degrees, there may be some effects that are gonna be harder to deal with but we could still adapt in time to contain those effects, minimize biodiversity loss, ecological degradation, save more human lives, things like that. Um, of course, at the time of the report's release, you also have Biden um, authorizing more uh, federal land to oil and natural gas drilling, despite climate change being one of the several urgent reasons we should have voted for Biden in the first place. Yeah, I mean, this is, I mean, in some ways, it's like the thing I feel like I have the least to say about just in the sense that, like, yeah, I mean, you've summed it up or, you know, mostly that it's like, yeah, it's this, you know, it's a looming crisis that we are ignoring. Um, I, the authorized use of federal lands, I thought, it wasn't that something that they had explicitly in a press briefing said they were not going to do because it wouldn't do anything for oil prices? They reneged on that, I think, earlier this yeah, year. Yeah, well, that's, and... that's wonderful. Uh, because I thought they, that was, like, one of the things they brought up in, like, you know, because, like, Steve Ducey kept, like, pressing them on it. Like, well, why don't you do this? Like, well, they're not using the land that we already gave them. So I would release more. And now doing more, I think it's, I don't know. I, is this, I guess it's just playing politics with this situation Again, I mean, it's trading off one crisis for another, and I mean, just because the land's least, I guess, doesn't mean it's necessarily being actively used for a while. But still, it's you know, there's no attempt to like really retreat from anything. And yeah, it's a it's a clear you know, a version of what was promised as far as like just the genre of policy that we would be getting from this mm -hmm. administration compared to the Trump administration and it's like it's one of those disturbing things where just like you know with like the whole idea of a two-party system in theory is you know have like this competition of ideas if you would and it seems like on this pretty important issue there's really not any competition it's mm -hmm. kind of just hive mind right and it's again like we like we talked about earlier so you know it's to prevent the fundamental question from being asked of why do we need to run things like this? Why do we need to be the reserve consumer at the end of a line of production? Why, 
why do we need to rely on cars? Why do we need to um, consume at these at these astronomical rates? And we're conditioned to do these things. Yeah, and it's one of those things too, where you know you always have that you know those idioms of like you know don't reinvent the wheel, and that's pretty much how the American culture has been sort of locked in on that particular capacity, really since. Uh, I would say probably the 60s, maybe the 50s. Mm-hmm. Um, probably the 60s, once that, like, you know, everyone had a car, and then yeah, I would say around then you s- start strangling pro- public transit as, you know, the years go on. Um, and, you know, the idea of a walkable community is also pretty much a foreign concept in this country as well. Oh, yeah, just because of automotive zoning regulations. That's yeah. why, like, all the suburbs in this country look the same. That's why that's why Florida looks so depressing, because you are basically running U.S. zoning laws through the Caribbean to get a car-dependent, you know, society. That's why Florida looks so depressing in some capacity. But well, it'll be again, really depressing based on this report. Right, right. And it's, it's, it's again, like... I, I know. Well, I guess that's don't... kind of the theme of the entire episode. Actually, is that Florida is depressing. <laughs> Again, the <laughs> world is getting worse. <laughs> the world's getting worse. The show will get even worse. So, so again, bear that in mind, dear listener. But also, like, I know that people don't like to view politics in a moralistic context, especially you know as people get sick of Id Paul and SJW stuff. I know that people like don't like to confront certain realities, but. I think what this boils down to, to some extent, and I know, I wish I had a better way of stating this, or I was able to state this maybe with more sincerity, but uh, the way we're running things is it's, it's misanthropic. It's anti-life at a point. And, you know, if you're, if you want to play the culture war, there will be no culture war to, to play. Without a world with people on it, if you yeah, that's, want, that's our that's our selling point. Let's let's take care of the environment so we can live the culture war until the heat death of the universe. Right, right, because you can't stop the heat death of the universe. But I mean, again, what what I hope for is, let's say we stop it, then we can we can really get to the battle of like you know we got to stop this culture war nonsense. We got to stop this individualistic thinking. Because at some level, I, I don't know if this is the case for you, dear listener, but for me, it's like, can we just not hate each other? Can we can we just like figure out where everyone's at? Maybe help one another. I know that's some hippie bullshit, and I, I should be shot for saying that out loud. But you know, we we could a better world is possible, right? And this episode is brought to you by your new host, Cory Booker. <laughs> this episode brought to you by Halliburton Inc. <laughs> god um but but yeah it's just i i I don't know it kind of just feels like a race to extract as much profit as we can uh before everyone dies of a massive heat wave and then who knows maybe if you're rich enough you'll make it on elon's uh rocket to mars unless and be allowed on his new social media platform oh my god so yeah that i think i think we, we we were wondering do we mention this in passing Maybe to maybe to take things back on a bit of an upward trajectory, <laughs> SpaceX. But um, you know, I think what what is the background with with uh with Elon Musk buying these shares in Twitter? Does it really have to do with the fact that um, 
his ex-wife and uh, Chelsea Manning are together. Is that what caused this? Or uh... I don't know. I mean, I've 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 heard there's like some like investigations into him, and like it's a cover up for that. I don't know, man. But he wants to buy Twitter as a quote unquote free speech advocate. Of course, his uh, you know fans all buy it. No one else does. You can just look at the history of how he's treated his Tesla employees and whatnot. And mm-hmm. Any slight criticism is met with pretty fierce punishment um, and usually termination. So I don't know. I think this is probably going to be a non-story. At least I certainly hope so. Um, uh, this but... is just another way for Elon Musk to stay, you know, from preventing himself from becoming financially insolvent. We all we we broadly understand at this point that. Tesla is not a car company. It's a financial company that sells cars every now and then. Yeah, but, it just buys. It just buys out. You know the uh, emission shares from, or sells its emission shares to the other automotive companies. And dear God, that's pretty much all it is. I, uh, there's nothing more American you can do than just scamming people, just lying. Well, it's not. It's not even so much that. It's just like it's. I'm going to pollute beyond my regulated amount, so I'm just going to buy the amount of pollution someone else can have. I recall reading about this, and I just I you, yeah. you reminded me again of the, the just. <laughs> I mean, you know what? Good on him for you know supporting free speech. I hope that gives us the right to say that. Uh, he he fucking definitely got that money from uh, selling apartheid emeralds. But uh, <laughs> you know, the, if he does buy Twitter, I don't know if my action is to leave the platform or not. But I will say the rules are always the same. Fuck the mods. Evergreen statement, especially now. <laughs> okay. Well, I think that covers everything we had mentioned on the outline so far. Uh, barring any other, you know, statements you had on what we discussed so far, I wanted to ask if you could plug this new project you're working on, something that's actually exciting and not depressing. Uh, <laughs> I don't know, sometimes. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, uh, yeah, uh, while we were on hiatus here and whatnot, I... Um... A couple of buddies I've met online, um, we created this pro wrestling podcast, uh, Monster Pop Podcast, uh, at Monster Pop Pod on Twitter. Uh, we are now technically, I believe, 11 episodes deep, but we have 13 things out because we had a special edition for WrestleMania and mm-hmm. an interview with an indie wrestler. Um, so those are all fun. Check us out. We put out content uh, pretty much every week. Um and pretty much wherever podcasts can be listened to, we have a link tree on our Twitter account. Uh, if anyone wants to check that out, um, it's fun. We have a lot of fun doing it. Uh, this upcoming episode, I will do something live. Uh, well, it's not live, but, you know, pre-recorded. Uh, that will probably shock and alarm everyone, but <laughs> it'll be it'll be a good time for everyone. Hopefully, <laughs> absolutely. I mean, I'm not really a pro wrestling head. I wasn't allowed to watch it as a kid, but. Um... I did tune in for a couple episodes and you guys have such a good vibe. That's really what matters in a podcast. You can just listen in and, and yeah. And I think episode 11 was when you guys were talking about uh, bots supporting. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 
and I just... mentioned that I have like this weird intersection of like my life's that just melded. To, like, well, I mean, you said it aptly, where it's like pro wrestling and is like the natural progression of politics, or vice versa. I forgot how you yeah. said it, but it, it makes perfect sense, you know. So again, like it's a good show. Check it out. Even if you're not a wrestling head, you will actually learn a lot through osmosis listening to it. So, greenhouse gaslighting gives the official podcast seal of approval. Well, thank you. This is definitely not a, a, a endorsement scam. We are not receiving shares. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> we don't have any money to to buy endorsements. <laughs> No, this show's not making any money. I don't know about you guys, but you guys are definitely better produced than me. I will say that. Oh, thank you. Me working We've here. Got a little bit of a larger team, but there you I mean, there you go. Um, but yeah, check out Monster Pop. Uh I'll include the links in the description below. Um, any closing thoughts before we close this episode? Uh life's crazy, man. Yeah. We went through a whole lot of stuff. Most of it sucked. <laughs> Any, what, the, like the, 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 the show or the events? Because yes, the, the events. Both. <laughs> the, the events. Uh, I mean, even like the Supreme Court thing, which I thought you know was generally good. It was like, well, you know, we mostly focused on you know the ways it sucked and just like yeah. the ways it's just a symptom of society sucking. And yeah, I mean, my yeah, my self loathing is you know what keeps bringing me back. <laughs> Oh God. Um, well, I don't know. To speak to speak on self-loathing, I, I mean that's kind of what's been preventing me from working on a couple episodes. I know that's TMI, but you know, what what I can definitely say is, you know, the people who should be hating themselves don't. Yeah. And they're in power. You know what I mean? They embarrass themselves on the daily. Kind of the theme of this episode. Right, right. And it's, you know, you you as an average citizen. I can tell just knowing myself, knowing you, knowing others, you know, who are dealing with with a lot of the same shit, you know, ask, ask yourself in context, what have you actually done to warrant your level of self-hate? Chances are not much. Yeah. These motherfuckers, on the other hand, <laughs> I don't know. So, I mean, that's that's where I'll close out the episode tonight. You know, I know self-love can be hard, but an easy transition uh, towards that is rejecting your self-hate and start really thinking about who should be hating themselves. So the show is Greenhouse Gaslighting. Uh, I'll put the links to uh, my social media below. Uh, we've encouraged you to follow Josh several times on this show, uh, and I'm going to do that again. Uh, Josh, where can people find you on uh, Elon Musk's new site? <laughs> uh, still the same hashtag. Uh, at uh joshua costs or at yeah at joshua cost 17 on twitter uh that's about all i got right now uh no might be a website by the end of the summer we, we shall see indeed indeed uh and yeah that's this was episode 44 i think uh so until then take care dear listeners thanks for tuning in again see you again in the greenhouse bye